If you see a robed figure on the corner with a sign reading, The end is near, take note. He could be talking to federal contractors. The longer the debt limit debate in Congress drags on, the more likely it will interrupt federal buying. How's that? We turn to federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And you're postulating, Larry, that uh, even if there is a deal reached at the very last moment, it could still throw the monkey wrench into the contracting works? Tom, I am. And I, I think it's important to note that while most of the country looks at the middle of June as the do-or-die date for getting a budget ceiling deal, for government contractors, that waterfall is uh, right in front of them. It could happen this week. It could happen next week. But you shouldn't be thinking about June as a government contractor because it's going to happen much sooner than that for government contracting for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the companies, uh, the people in government agencies that companies want to meet with are increasingly going to have to be in continuity of operations meetings. They're increasingly going to have to plan, Tom, as if part or all of their agencies are going to shut down. Regardless of whether they ultimately end up shutting down, there are standard required plans for anticipating that. And here we are scarcely 60 days out from uh, the cliff uh, that's been predicted and right now government contractors are probably already starting to see their flow of business slow down a little bit some of those meetings particularly with senior level people are going to be increasingly difficult to get because they're distracted elsewhere this is going to have an impact on business at least into the third quarter and depending on whether we get a deal and when tom it could also leak into the fourth quarter. What you're saying then essentially is that the fear, uncertainty, and doubt will mean that contracting the most discretionary of the discretionary dollars would be the first that people would start to hoard, so to speak. Well, they're going to hoard those discretionary dollars, and they also might just stop spending them if they feel that their agencies might be shut down uh, and they are unable to take delivery of goods ordered. We actually have seen this before when the government did have a shutdown over appropriations. You know, companies would deliver things to government loading docks that were closed because of the shutdown, uh, and then they had a mess. That's the short version. All things can happen then, but uh, it was a mess. So I think agencies remember that. Maybe some contractors remember that. And that's going to have to play into the planning right now, Tom, that's going on around a potential debt ceiling shutdown which we've never had before. So we don't know if it's going to be exactly like an appropriation shutdown or not, but we do know that it's going to cause disruption and that both contractors and their government customers are going to have, are going to feel the effects and they're going to have to plan accordingly. Right. Because the treasury would have to start deciding which government obligations are the most important and which are the least. And so they would not choose its likely contractor obligations and spending obligations as a high priority, given what a crisis that would be, in other words. I think that's a significant fact, particularly if you're a small business that relies on cash flow. Even if you've delivered something and the government agency is using it, in the event of a debt default, we could really end up seeing small businesses not getting paid because of the Treasury's prioritization of where available funds go. 
and it could be months uh, before some of these businesses are paid, even on proper invoices. That's just one of many negative effects. What I'm really trying to drive home, Tom, is there are likely to be negative effects, even if we do end up with a deal at the last minute. And contractors have to be prepared to understand what the potential impact of their business is going to be. And in the unlikely, I hope, event of an actual default and partial shutdown, how much that could impact what happens during the fourth quarter. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Yes, because the fourth quarter will likely lead to another continuing resolution. And if that continues with 2023 programs, therefore, into fiscal 2024, at least you've got what could not have been spent during the debate over the the near miss of the debt ceiling deadline could then proceed under the CR at least. So long as you can get something started now, Tom, with new projects, you know, that's really the deal between now and the end of the current fiscal year. You know, we certainly are going to start FY24 with a continuing resolution. And what I always counsel people is try to get those projects that are on the drawing board at least kicked off. You don't have to have the first play from scrimmage to follow the football metaphor, but they do have to get kicked off so that in the event of a CR, you can keep them going. All right. And think of the deflate gate we'd have then if something (laughs) happened on the dollar end of things. And I wanted to ask you about the Federal Trade Commission. You're telling your clients these days that that's an agency contractors need to pay attention to, perhaps to a greater degree than they would have in the past. That's exactly right, Tom. I really think that government contractors should add the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, to the list of government agencies they need to uh, look at in terms of the impact that uh, agency actions could have on their government contract business. Right now, we have a very progressive and activist FTC uh, that is looking at Uh, what had been considered the normal conduct of business in several areas. But there are really two specific areas, at least, Tom, that are or soon will be uh, impacting government contractors. Probably one of the ones that's most significant is uh, the weaponization of the False Claims Act to punish contractors that overhype the capabilities of their solutions. We see in the FTC recently, Tom, turn its attention to artificial intelligence claims made by companies uh, and saying, look, if you're promising the moon and the stars, but you're not delivering it, that could be construed as a false claim. So it's that marketing message. You know, what's the veracity of your marketing message? Uh, And the FTC is really taking a hard look at that. And of course, the, the False Claims Act is a very powerful tool just from the civil side where you have a per-invoice fine and the ability to recover treble damages. So that's one area. Another area where the FTC uh, is getting involved is in the use of non-compete agreements. Now, this isn't exclusive to government contractors, but in point of fact, many government contractors do have non-compete agreements in place with their employees. And earlier this year, the FTC issued a pretty substantial notice of proposed rulemaking 
that would essentially ban most types of non-compete agreements. There are reasons why non-compete agreements are in place. Companies spend a lot of time training employees and share sensitive information, and then the employee leaves and goes somewhere else. You really don't want to have them sharing trade secrets with a new employer. Nevertheless, the FTC believes that that's a restriction on the mobility of employees, so they're taking a shot at non-compete agreements. Although government contractors already have a host of agencies that they have to look at that could impact their business, Tom, unfortunately now they are going to have to add the FTC to that list. Yes, because even if the FTC's actions are struck down in court, there's still that period of time and expense until all of that actually plays out, which could be years. That's right. It, it could be years. And you're, typically it would be years. And if you're involved in the litigation, then you're having to pay for that. And that's a big cost of doing business. It's also a distraction from your daily business. Even if you're not paying to litigate it, if some of the rules stay in place during the time that the litigation is working itself out, you're kind of hamstrung by having to follow the rules, even if they are eventually overturned. And so that's a short-term cost and a short-term distraction at a time when you probably really don't want any additional distractions. What you're really trying to do is grow your company and service your customers. And pay your employees. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you very much, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. 
And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where 
you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.